Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Brilakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and Complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and Complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Margaret McIntaggart from the Director of CTO and Complex PCI from Coloma University. Margaret, thanks again for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Manos, for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And, you know, we're really thrilled you had a great journey from both sides of the Atlantic. So we're very excited to um, learn from you how things work and what you've seen in the similarities or not. Uh, in the in the two parts that you've been working, but maybe give us a little background. How did you become interested in this field, complex and CTO PCI? How did you become um, into this and learned as much as you have now to become uh, very proficient and excellent in teaching people? Yeah, thanks, Manos. So I uh, did most of my training in uh, Scotland in the UK, and uh, as I was coming through my cardiology training, that was at the time that primary PCI was uh, starting in the UK, and uh, one of the interventional cardiologists I worked for was a real driving force behind um, that in Scotland. And at the time that I came through as a general cardiology fellow, they merged the two big centres in Glasgow, which is the biggest city in Scotland, into one big heart centre. Um, so it became a real hub where all the interventionists came together for the first time in the, in the city. So my timing was really perfect. So I got involved with that from the very start. And then what happened was because it was such a busy centre, I essentially got moved there full time as I suppose the first really dedicated interventional cardiology fellow in Glasgow. And I just spent four or five days a week in the lab, which was a new concept there because at that time when you trained in the UK, you only really got to be in the lab maybe two, three days a week maximum if you were even when you were training an intervention. So I then got this really fantastic concentrated period of training in the lab really over a period of about two years because they needed somebody and I was even though I was early on in my general cardiology because there was a need I got to kind of front load my training I suppose and the, the, the chap there that was driving the whole thing was also the person that was interested in the most complex procedures so I then got to essentially work with him most of the time and pick up, you know, all the skills required for left main and rotablation and all the other types of calcium modification devices we had back in, in that time. Um, so very early on, working with him, I realised that you know, that was where I wanted to be. I wanted to be the go-to person in the group. I wanted to be the person that had all the, the advanced skills and, uh, and be able to deal with anything that came in the door, really. So that really got me interested in it. Um, so yeah, and then I spent I spent a couple of years there as an interventional fellow. By the, the end of which I was already lucky enough to be independent in a lot of the complex techniques, and I decided it would be good for me to to do a fellowship somewhere else, uh, just to get a different perspective. And um, I happened to bump into Marty Leon. Actually, he came over to be keynote speaker at the British Interventional Society meeting. And I, I got to, to meet him and he said to me, you know, we never get fellows from the UK. Um, why is that? And I said, well, it's because we have to take the American exams to be able to, to practice. So he said to me, if we offered you a fellowship, would you do it? So I said, 
Okay, so I then spent the second year of my fellowship doing the USMLE, uh, also while doing my fellowship, and then came to Columbia 2010 and did a year here with, um, at that time, you know, Marty, Greg, Jeff, and actually also at the time, it was a really, I was thinking about this yesterday, and it was a really interesting time because it was the year that Crossbow Stingray came out, Right. So I got the kind of very early exposure to the whole ADR hybrid algorithm thing with Jeff. And at the same time, it was also the year that Partner A and B were done and that I was also training to do structural at the time. So I had this real kind of concentrated year of being exposed to the early TAVR work here and also to the crossbow stingray development of ADR. So it was really a, a really interesting year. And then... I went back to Glasgow. They had offered me a job in Glasgow before I came on fellowship. So I went back and the chap that had been doing most of my CTO, most of my complex training there, was doing a bit of CTO, but really just anti-grade wire cases. And then we, I came back and decided that I would try and build the CTO program. So um, again, my timing was perfect because at that point, James Spratt, who's now in London, but at the time was in Edinburgh, which is the other big city in Scotland, he was um, already established really as the only real kind of comprehensive C2 operator in Scotland and the lead C2 operator in the UK. And him and Simon Walsh and Colm Harati, who were both based in Belfast, the three of them are really the main drivers of CTO PCI in the UK. And um, I was lucky to have kind of gotten to know them a little bit. So when I came back, they kind of took it on themselves to proctor me informally, I suppose, before that really became a big thing. Sure. So I would save up the retrograde and ADR cases and usually James and occasionally the guys from Belfast would come over once every now and then and we'd do like a full day in the lab and train. And just over the, the first few years, I suppose I wasn't attending there. I just built the program gradually and built my experience. And uh, and yeah, and that, that, that was how things how things went. And then here we are. 10 years later. <laughs> See, full circle, right? You came yeah. and now back and now you're back again. So fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's, a, yeah. I guess, a tremendous uh, kudos to you because I'm sure it's not easy to go all these uh, switches, right? You were in one place, you go to another place, back another place. So a lot of switches, but uh, uh, clearly you were driven. So w- what made you, you know, because it's a I'm sure personal toll and a lot of back and forth, how did you go through all this process? And was it exciting and fascinating or was it stressful? How did you find all this process? Yeah, it's an interesting thing to talk about and reflect on. You know, I've always been one of these people that um, I see things that I'm interested in and I, I tend to just follow my nose, as you say. Um, I've never really stopped to really reason too much with myself about whether I should or shouldn't do things. I always think, well, that looks like where I should go, I'll go there. Um, and I suppose that's kind of always taken me um, in the right. I've been lucky enough, it's always opened the doors and taken me where I where I wanted to go. But yeah, I mean, I think undoubtedly it takes uh, its toll, I think. Coming on fellowships is a different thing because you're a bit younger, you're 10 years younger, and it's usually for a finite period of time, especially when I came on fellowship, I knew I was going back. So I knew I had a year to really intensively soak up everything I could. Um, Coming back this time was a bigger thing, obviously, because I'm 10 years into practice I've now become kind of the person that everybody goes to and looks up to to, to do these cases and the environment in which I've, I've I've been working. You've kind of got your network, um, and you know to to lift yourself out of that and come to you know a bigger institution with all that goes with that 
and know that you're going to have to some degree re-establish yourself in a different environment and also relearn how to work in a completely different healthcare system, um, I suppose, uh, was was something I had to, to give some thought to. I think, though, the opportunity that this job uh, offered me in terms of you know, further expanding and growing my skill set in the lab and outside of the lab, I think, um, was 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 very attractive for me. And I think also the platform, you know, one of the big selling points that the guys here made to me when I came over to speak to them about the job was that they felt it was a really important platform for me, I suppose, as a female interventional cardiologist to, 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 to take on and, and to try and, um, I suppose, bring a slightly different flavour and a bigger a bigger stage uh, than on which I was operating before. And I think professionally for me that, you know, you'll be the same. I noticed once you get, you know, 10 years into your your career, you start thinking about things bigger than the next case. You start thinking about other impacts you can make and um, other differences you can make in the field. And I suppose it, I've maybe just got to that point now where I'm starting to think outside of the lab as well as inside the lab and, what impact you can have on training and bringing other young operators on and um, you're creating a vision of what other people might think they want to be. So, yeah, and I, and I think, you know, even if I'm being really candid about it, I think that even as a operator 11 years into my experience uh, doing CTO and feeling, you know, very confident in that role, still quite daunting to take yourself to a new a new centre you know because um, there's a lot of expectation isn't there about what you're going to bring and you're undoubtedly going to put that pressure on yourself to to measure up to what everybody expects from you um, I don't know I think maybe some of it is to do with your ability to cope with that and how you embrace that is partly to do with um, who's round about you you know your family and your friends and and also your kind of deep deep-seated sense of yourself I suppose um I suppose I've been I've been lucky. I I grew up um, in a pretty. Uh, I came from a very kind of um, normal background. My um, my mother was a teacher. My father died when I was very young, actually. Uh, my mother brought six children up herself, and we all went mm-hmm. to state school. And uh, she was very fiercely focused on education, so we all went to state funded university places. Um, and uh, thankfully, I've all gone on to be very successful in our, our careers. But I think it probably gave me a drive, a determination, uh, and a kind of deep inner strength, I suppose, to and a sense of your own purpose that I suppose has carried me probably through my career to where I where I found find myself now. You know, when I was leaving Glasgow, actually, the day the the week I left, they had like you know like a celebration kind of you know sending off, I suppose. And they asked me about, you know, to reflect on where I had started and where I was going. And um, it was quite interesting to have to, for the first time, I think, probably since I graduated in 1997 from university, 25 years ago, to stop and think about that journey and felt quite humbled, to be honest, about, you know, the key people in my my life uh, that had allowed me to go from where I'd started to where I've arrived. Um, So, yeah. Well, I mean, clearly you took advantage of the opportunities and you learned. And having, the, as you said, the, some of the best people in the world teach you that, that goes a long way. But now that you're you know, very established and very confident, do you still get anxious about cases? Do you feel you're learning? Or now that cases are not that 
um, stressful, so to speak, anymore? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I wouldn't say I I get anxious anymore about cases. Um, I think I'm very considered, much more considered. I think one of the things that comes with experience is you think more deeply up front about all the potential challenges and hazards of the cases as you walk into them. Um, so I would say that I'm much more measured um, about how I approach cases. And I think that's probably true of all uh, operators as you become more experienced in PCI. But I, um, I, you know, I, I'm very, very, uh, very strong feeling about properly planning your procedures. And often what I'll do is if I've got cases coming, I'll look at the lists the week the week ahead, you know, and I'll see what's coming and then I'll have a quick look at the case and then the day before I'll have a really, really careful look at the case and study the case quite carefully. You know, the obviously the angiographic imaging, all the other imaging and investigations we've got, and then all the aspects of the patient themselves. But I like to ruminate on the cases, you know, so often then I'll go home and maybe if I'm going for a run or going for a bike ride or doing whatever I'll, I'll be thinking about the case and thinking around all the potential um, you know, options in the case and hazards and hurdles that we're likely to encounter in the case. So I've often kind of pre-thought the cases quite thoroughly before and I think that takes away a lot of anxiety of a case and also I think being um, realistic and pragmatic at sometimes about what you're going to achieve, you know, so if you're going to go into a case that's essentially an impossible case, um, then you have to be honest with yourself and with the patient about what it is that you're, you're setting out to, to try and achieve for that patient. And I think the most important thing is to try and always remain focused on trying to make the procedure as safe as possible, especially when we're dealing with CTO, where largely we're looking to try and improve a patient's symptoms and their quality of life. And I think it's important to strive as best we can to try and avoid um, significant risk and complications in those patients if, if we can. And obviously, we need to embrace a degree of risk in the work we do because that's the nature of the work. And the only way to achieve success in certain cases is in some way to embrace risk. But it's measured risk and you have to have thought that through carefully uh, as you approach these cases. And I think during a case, one of the big skills, I think, of a complex operator and a C2 operator is to re-adjudicate that during the case. You recalibrate where the risk is, you know, so you're 90 minutes, two hours into a difficult case and you maybe haven't progressed as far as you should have and you're encountering problems you didn't anticipate. The ability to pause and think, should we be persisting with this? Have we, has the hazard and the risk rebalanced and against, you know, against the, a successful outcome here and, a, you know, not in favour of us? I think, you know, as well as the agility as a C2 operator to change your strategy, you should also have the agility to be able to to proceed on or to back away from a case when you feel the risk-benefit balance is shifting in the wrong direction. Wonderful. And then obviously that takes a lot of time and experience. But for the students that you teach, the fellows, uh, both in Scotland as well as here in Colombia, um, how do you actually select the patients the, or the, the fellows you want to train? Do you have any criteria? Is it more the drive? Is it their technical skills, their enthusiasm? What makes you think that this person is going to be a great operator? I'm going to, I want to train him and make him reach his goals. That's a great question, Manos, and obviously timely because we're all in the process of recruiting the, the CHIP fellows for next year. Um, 
So I think it's a combination of things. I think um, just like people that are high achieving athletes, you need something more than just the physical ability. Um, you obviously need a certain level of physical ability, I think, to be and, de- and, and dexterous ability, I suppose, in our work to be able to function at a certain level. But beyond that, you also need the emotional intelligence and the communication skills and the academic uh, engagement with what it is you're trying to do to be the full package. So usually when I'm looking, you know, if I'm training fellows and I'm trying to uh, identify who I think is going to be people who are going to be suited well for this field, I'm looking for all of that. I'm looking for somebody who can look at the patient and determine whether it's appropriate to take on a high-risk case in that patient. You know, is it appropriate in this 85-year-old woman with multiple comorbidities to be taken on this complex left main in this clinical presentation? You know, so someone who's 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 sensitive to that and can um, listen to the patient and adjudicate uh, the appropriateness of what they're doing, but then obviously have the skill to execute the case but also have, as I said earlier on, the kind of emotional intelligence and the connection with themselves to be able to know, and the courage in themselves to be able to know when you shouldn't be doing things or when you should be backing away from things. And I think that's uh, important. I think also a good sense of your own limitation when you're training is really important. You know, So to be able to know that there's a time and a case where you, you can't be at the front of the table and you have to be willing to stand to the right-hand side of the operator and learn and I'll often say to the the trainees uh, the two trainees I've had here so far who work you know both with me and with Jeff who I trained with um, and Aji um, you know when I trained with Jeff I spent a large part of that training standing to Jeff's right and you know I learned through that process that when I went back to Glasgow to then run my own CTO program I knew how to think through the case and I knew what the next decision was from standing to the right of somebody who was doing that um, for a large part of that 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 fellowship. And I, I tried to coach them a lot that it doesn't, you don't always have to have at the early stage of your training and your practice, don't always have to be the person on the left. Sometimes it's more important to be the person on the right and to kind of exercise the thought process and, uh, and exercise your brain during these cases as much as it is to exercise your hands. So I think a, an engagement with that and an understanding of that is really important. Perfect. And then in terms of the live cases, obviously you've done many live cases for patient organizing this here and um, all the planning that involved. What do you think about live cases? How mm. useful do you find them? Do you get stressed out when you do them? Uh, what is What are your thoughts, how to make the most out of live cases? Yeah, so I, uh, I still remember, I remember the first time I went to TCT, right, when I was a trainee. And I was sitting beside a colleague of mine watching live cases and I thought, why on earth would you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> why on earth would you put yourself through that, that stress? You know, like that just this seems like a crazy thing to do. And then the next thing it comes along and someone asks you to do it and you think, okay, and then you do one and then you do another one and then suddenly it becomes something that you find yourself doing all the time. So what I would say is early on, um, it's pretty stressful. Um because, you know, you it, it takes a bit of time to get used to being able to work and listen and you educate at the same time. But there are some good tricks to it, I think. So firstly, when you start off, start in your own centre. 
So start surrounded by people that you're used to working with that don't need you to instruct every single action during a case. So your own people around about you. And start with somebody who you've worked with regularly. You know, so the person you scrub with, make it somebody you've worked with regularly. I would say I think this would be a good, good way to start for your first one or two live cases. And the other thing I think is really important is to have a good plan for roles. You know, as I always say when I'm doing live case with somebody who's not done one before, is, okay, you're going to do the case and I'm going to take most of the questions. And occasionally I'll throw you a question when we're in a nice, comfortable part of the case, but just you concentrate on doing the case and I'll feel the talk. And I think that's a really good way to, to do it. So I think being structured in your mind about how you're going to, you're going to do the case and have a really good pre-discussion with the person to your right and the rest of the room, how, think, how the flow of the case is going to go. I think also trying not to overprove yourselves, you know. So the main point of doing a live case is to educate, it's not to show off. So you'll pick cases that are going to be educational for the people that are actually going to be watching. Um, and then also that's less, you know, early on it's going to be less stressful for you when you know you're very capable of doing that case. So I think that's a good way to start. For me now, I think early on, undoubtedly, I was nervous. And I think when you go to places you've never worked before, with people you've never worked before, it can still be unsettling. Um, and, you know, and even in recent years, I've gone to places to do live cases where I don't feel nervous at all. And then you get into the room and you realize that things are not the way you normally would do them or the dynamics of the room are funny or there's just something that unsettles the energy. And I think with experience, you get better at re realigning that and controlling the, the the atmosphere and the dynamic in the room. Um, so I wouldn't say that I um, I get anxious, but and I think the other thing is always to remember is if you can't complete a case, it's not the worst thing as long as the patient doesn't come to harm and as long as you've done what you, you were there to do, which is to educate people. I think it's just remembering that it's not it's not about that. It's not about how you look to the audience it's about getting the patient through the procedure safely and about providing education then i think as time goes on you get less nervous about it wonderful and then what gets you going through this stress i know there's a lot of stress everywhere else do you have you exercise you read books how do you kind of get your body and, and mind ready for this uh, complex procedures yeah so i'm a big uh, big exercise person so I, I learned fairly early on um, as a young, as a, I suppose as a junior doctor, that exercise was a great way to, to keep yourself straight. So um, even from when I was back doing um, my internal medicine boards and things, I used to um, come home from work and I would go running um, before I sat down to study. And I've done that really through my whole career. So I, uh, I, I run a bike to work sometimes and, um, I go to yoga. I'm a big yoga, um, a big yoga fan, and uh, I do hit classes. And when I was in Glasgow, I swam. Um, I still need to sort out a place to do that in New York. So I pretty much will exercise five, six days a week. And um, partly, I think, importantly, to keep your body strong because it's an arduous, uh, arduous career. And um, even a few years into my uh, attending job, I had some serious back problems that. I was able to fix through uh, yoga and Pilates and even then I was fit. So it made me really aware of the fact that to keep my body fit and strong was important to be able to sustain myself through uh, the work. But even more importantly for me, for my, for my mind, you know, it, it relaxes me and switches me off. And I think subconsciously lets me process a lot of the stress that 
comes with the job and I think I'm lucky I'm a kind of I don't really feel stress or express stress externally but I think I process stress internally through my uh, body through my physicality and I think the way to release that is to use exercise to do that so yeah so exercise for me is a big thing I love to one of the things about Scotland that I had to kind of let go of a little bit was the ability to go out after work and be in the hills and in the mountains uh, uh, hiking or running with the dog or um, and I'll find my, my way in places to do that here but that was something that I used to to love to do um, and in addition to that you know, all sorts of other things I love to read um, I like to go to the theatre you know this weekend I went to the Met uh, for a wander around in the the uh, sculpture rooms for a, for an hour or two. I enjoy that kind of uh, thing. So, yeah, anything that that uses your your brain and your body in a way that distracts you from the stresses of work, I think, is uh, is helpful. Wonderful. And then, um, what is the next step for you? And obviously, you just took up a huge role and you're doing great job on that. But what is coming next? So, you're a very established operator. You're teaching people all over the world. What is the next thing that uh, you want to do? Yeah, so I suppose you're right. So I started here in April, so I'm just uh, six months into the job. So I feel six months in, I've kind of finally starting to get a real hold on. Because even, you know, moving from the UK to the US, I've really had to relearn how the US system works and even how the hospital works and how the office works and where the referrals come from and all these things. So it's probably taken me six months to really reacclimatize to that and, and understand again um, um, how to... F- function fully and fruitfully in this environment so I suppose now going forward my next big thing is CTO plus uh, with the help of um, Adri Jeff yourself Bill Lombardi Bill Nicholson um, in February so that's really probably my big focus for the next few months is really trying to get that uh, organized and and make a good job I mean that another great successful year of that fantastic meeting and then in addition to that I suppose grow uh, the next uh, generation of complex operators uh, through the fellowship programs. And for me, I'm also, like yourself, very academically interested. So start to build some um, my research program here. So I had started a, a few significant pieces of work when I was in Glasgow, co-supervised PhD students and started to run some small clinical trials. So I'm hoping to really get my teeth into to that here. That was one of the other big attractions of this uh, job. The biggest thing I've got coming next year is obviously the Empower uh, study with uh, Shockwave, the, the Shockwave for Calcium Modification in Female Patients study, uh, which we're hoping to get off the ground. Myself and Alexandra Lansky are the chief investigators for that, so we're hoping to get that off the ground Q1, Q2, 2023. So I think between that and wrapping up some research I had going in the UK and Europe and getting CTO plus off the ground will keep me busy for the next six months. And then <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure there's going to be a, you know, a, a barrage of things for me to, to be getting on with uh, as time goes on. Well, it's impressive. And again, great testament to all the things you've accomplished and the many more things to come. And as we finish up, just a, a few advice for people, especially actually for women, because unfortunately, as you know, we don't have that many women in the field of CTO uh, PCI. I mean, there's Arasi Maran, Alison Hod, Kay Kearney, yourself, but there's not that many women compared with men. So any advice to people, and especially women who want to follow like your pathway and become CTO and complex operators? Yeah, so I would say if you want to do it and you feel that you've got the right kind of um, qualities that 
allow you to enjoy it and you think you will um, be feel fulfilled in that role, then you should pursue it. Don't be put off by things you might perceive to be obstacles because everything is surmountable. And what I would I would advise is you know, seek good mentors. You know, the we're blessed in the complex CTO field with a lot of incredible mentors, you know, and people that will support you, both men and women in the field. And you I, I benefited from that enormously through the the the, the men that mentored me and my male colleagues uh, through my training. So I think reach out to people. I think one of the great things about um the the field of CTO and complex PCI is people are very generous and their support um, of enthusiastic young operators. So, yeah, I would say attend all the, the, the major complex PCI meetings because that's where I learned my skills. I remember coming to CTO New York as a young operator and you, you're really closely and attentively watching what was going on and then going back to my practice and applying what I had, what I had seen in the live cases. So, yeah, I think attend the, the high-quality meetings Use proctors again. People are 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 very very generous with their time to come approach you and support you, um, to do cases and, um, you know if you if you use all all these um all these approaches, then I'm sure you'll succeed. Wonderful. Well, thanks again. I'm sure CTO Plus will be a huge success as all other projects you are undertaking. And again, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks for your advice to young colleagues, and uh, excited to work with you on CTO Plus. Thanks, Manos. Thank you for listening to the Sensei Podcast.